Lasso Leadership Training. If you've got kids that are in our Lasso Leaders program, you've probably seen me walk up to them and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, have you been practicing? Are you ready? And especially my little song leaders, I say, have, have you been working? Have you, have you picked a new song to practice with? Have you got a new one picked out, Cameron? Yeah, you do. You know, I kind of should have been doing the same thing to myself because you ought to always have a lesson ready. You ought to always have one prepared. We had an elder here back when we started named Bill Allenball. And Bill called me aside and he said, look here. And he opened his Bible up in the front there was a sermon. He said, you got to understand, anytime there's a chance you get to preach, you need a sermon right there, ready, whenever they ask you, be ready to go. I didn't have one ready. So when Spencer asked back in September, I was like, ah, I got this stuff I've been rolling around in my head, this stuff I've been studying, so, so maybe. And he gave us three dates. Well, I admire Randy Carlton. I don't see him today. He's probably in Cersei. But Randy said, I'll take the first one. And I looked down and I said, give me the last one. Give me some time. And so this is the, the last Sunday that we have a chance. Randy did a great job. Paul did a great job last week. Terry did a great job on Sunday night last week. So I thought, well, give me time to fine-tune it, to really work it up. But, you know, I started thinking, how am I going to prepare for a solid hour of preaching like Spencer does? <laughs> a solid hour. And, you know, I, I thought maybe that'll give me enough time. Well, I'm still not ready for a solid hour. Is that okay? Is that okay? All right. But we may be here a little while. Okay, so as I prepared, I really started focusing, started preparing in earnest for what it would be. And Spencer's preached for the last month and a half, and it's uncanny how many times when he gets in his lesson, he brings up a point or refers to a scripture, and it's right off of my stuff. It's like right out of my notes, and so every week I'm going back and changing. And I went back the second week, and I said, Spencer, I was going to use that. And he kind of laughed. He looked at me, and he says, Ah, you're a month from now. They won't remember anyway. <laughs> and then he said, well, they may not have been listening to begin with. No, I said that. He didn't say that. Anyway, so I did get a chance to pick a, a verse or two. Paul, Paul gave me a shot at this passage of Scripture, so that's what I'm going to do today. Tony read from us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And uh, you can probably guess this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Kyle and Shelby, if you're looking in your Bible, that's where you'll need to go, verse 9. And... It talks about a promise. And if you're looking in this chapter, chapter 3, there are three places where the word promise is used. And so I went and Googled it for you. I think Mitchell's got it. I'll try to let you know. Now, this is our verse that I wanted to focus on. Tony read it for you. God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. See, fifth and sixth graders, I told you, memorize verses. It's very important, okay? That's, the, that's really the key verse that I want to look at, but I want to bounce around and look at some of the others in this, in this section. Okay, In three of those verses, he uses the word promise. What is a promise? Well, I googled that for you, and it says that promise is a declaration or an assurance that a particular thing will happen or it will be done. Okay, got that. So what kind of promises will we talk about today? We're going to look at a few different ones. Okay, so when you have a promise, when is it significant? When does a promise really matter? Well, it doesn't matter unless you get it from a reliable source. You know, if, if one of these yahoos comes up to you and says, I, I promise you I'll do this, you don't always necessarily trust them. But in this case, we can be absolutely sure that the promiser can deliver what he said. Because the source of the promise here is God. 
So I went and looked, and I thought, well, I'll show you one, one promise or a couple of promises. I went to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And in this passage, Paul is quoting God. It comes from the voice of God, and it's found elsewhere in the Bible. But, but what God says is, I will be their God, they will be my people. That's an encouraging promise, right? And he goes further down in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and my daughters. Now, why would Paul say that to the church in Corinth? Do you think it encouraged them? Do you think they were happy to hear that? They were, they were glad to hear that God made that promise to them? I think so, because when you consider that the creator of our universe, the most powerful being that ever was and is, claims you, adopts you, you're his kids, that's encouraging. And if you look at your Bible, some of you have a reference Bible, and you look down at the bottom, it tells you not only did Paul say it here, he found it in, in Jeremiah, he found it in Ezekiel, he found it in Leviticus, it even, part of it even comes from 2 Samuel. Each generation that hears that promise would be encouraged, surely. But you know, the thing about God's promises, uh, they're, they're quite interesting if you, if you look at many of his promises, because most of them have conditions that accompany them. They have expectations where God wants something out of you. He expects you to obey Him. He expects us to follow Him. He also expects us to stay away from things that are wicked. So let's go back in 2 Peter. If you look at those three passages, there are three different ways of looking at it, but the, the whole gist of the promise is Jesus is coming again. That's what He's saying. Jesus is coming again. I promise you that. And He shows it in three perspectives. The first one is in verse 4, and you can just step through these one at a time. Verse 4, people are asking the rhetorical question. They say, where is this second coming that he promised? So that's what man's saying about God, uh, Jesus coming again. Verse 9, though, gives you a different picture. It's more God's, how God's going to react to that promise. It tells you the nature of God as he offers that promise to you. It tells you the surety, the fact that he's made this promise, he's going to keep this promise. And it also shows you a glimpse of how much he cares about you, how he cares about mankind. And then the last one's really more how Christians ought to be. It describes how we ought to be looking forward to that promise, looking forward to that new heaven and that new earth that's described here in verse 13. So I want to, as we talk about promises, I want to consider the different reactions that can come about based on promises. As we think about God's promise of Jesus coming again, okay, now catch me here. We can be absolutely certain that God will bring about the end of time. We can be absolutely certain that when Jesus comes again, we're going to see him. We can be absolutely certain that judgment will occur and there will be a decision made for our eternity that will be either heaven or hell and it will be decided by God. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen and studied God, and we've understand that He's merciful, that He's full of grace, that He's forgiving, that He's long-suffering. That is the nature of God toward us. But we've also studied the nature of God that He is sinless. He is unwilling to accept sin. He is unable. He just can't accept sin in His creation man. He cannot accept willful disobedience either. God is a God of grace and mercy. God is a God of judgment and punishment. God cares. He cares how we're going to react to his promise that Jesus comes again someday. He's got a plan. We know he has a plan. We know that at some 
period of time, after it passes, he's aware of when that plan is going to come to an end. We don't have a God that just sits back at the back with his arms crossed, indifferent. I don't care, sometime, someday, it don't matter. He knows he's got a plan. When that time comes, we're told that God will not delay. It will happen. So let's look at some examples. God makes promises in the Bible. Let's look at some examples where he's made promises. We see how God reacts during the course of the fulfillment of those promises. We can find some examples in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, and you may want to flip there. But before we go, I want to go back to an example that Spencer used in Exodus chapter 32. When we were studying before, one of the things that popped in my mind as he was teaching the story about the golden calf is, is how God had to react then. It's like God's looking down on this world and he sees what happens. Can't you just hear him say, I've had enough. I'm through with these people. He, he watched them as they're standing at the foot of that mountain. Maybe that's just what a frustrated human would do, but I don't know. I think maybe God may have reacted that way too. God said in chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, here, here's what he said in Exodus. He said, and if Randy was here, I'd get him to read it because he has a great... Have you ever heard him in VBS where he speaks and he's speaking to sound like the voice of God? How strong and stern that sounds? Well, I can't do that, but I'll try. Here's what God says. He says, I have seen this stiff-necked people... Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. I think he said enough. And what's so sad about it is God God was looking down at them, and God had proven time and time again how much he loved those people. He saved them from the plagues. They watched the the plagues hit the Egyptians. He saved them. They didn't have to endure all of that. He delivered them out of Egypt. An Egyptian army followed them. He destroyed them. He fed them. He led them with a cloud. He led them with a pillar of fire. And you know, even that very day where they're dancing around a golden calf, what was God doing? He was giving them the law. He was up there. If you're down there, you had to look up at the top of the mountain. You had to see the smoke. You had to know Moses was up there. How do you sin? How? They did. They had had all this time. God had made a promise to them. I'm bringing you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to this new land, this promised land. That's his promise. Yet they sinned. They had plenty of time. He was leading them. They could have responded to his leadership. They could have responded to his protection. Yet they chose to sin. And we read there where some of them died by the sword then. We also know that others were punished. They didn't get to go into promised land. Fortunately, there was a remnant of his people that did. But those people did not. The promise was fulfilled, and they were left out. And you know, if you read further there in chapter 32, there's a really ominous text. We we don't talk about this much. We study it in the New Testament thinking about Christianity, but it says in verse 33, here's what God said to them. He said, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. It says that in the Old Testament. Verse 34, he says, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin." Okay, let's go back to 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, we see some other promises, or I'm going to kind of infer a promise in one of them. But chapter 2, if you look at verse 4, there's a really odd expression here. We don't study this hardly at all. But we find in verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and that's how he introduces this verse, 
Angels who sinned. Have you ever thought about an angel sinning? Is that a common thing that we consider? No, that's not usually how we even think angels exist. We don't consider them in that light. But it goes even further. It says they sinned, and because of that fact, God cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Wow, that's strong for an angel. That's heavy. Okay, so it implies something here. Angels were in God's presence. They knew God. They understood God. They knew what he expected out of them, yet they didn't do it. They knew the nature of God, that God couldn't accept sin. They knew they had to understand all of that, yet they sinned. It's likely they knew that God expected them not to sin. It's likely they knew that there was to be an eternity with God, and they sinned. God allowed time to pass. He allowed them to do what they did. He allowed them to sin. God punished them. And he also set the stage for more punishment to be pending. Okay, the next example in verse 5. It says, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. That's a real clear promise we see of God, where God said, I'm going to destroy this earth. I'm going to flood it with water. Okay, and if you look back in Genesis chapter 6, we read that the Lord or God was sorry that he had made man. He looked down at what they were doing. He was sorry. It grieved him. It pained him greatly. And in verse 7, we see where God vowed. He says, I will destroy man from the face of the earth, both man and beast. But God spoke to Noah. He perceived Noah as a righteous man. He saw the difference in Noah and how Noah was reacting. Noah found grace from God. So at that time, God instructed Noah. He says, here's what I want you to do. He allowed him for a certain amount of time to build an ark, right? And he allowed him to preach. We think he preached for 100 years. So imagine this, being the preacher today. So you drive back and forth every day down this street going to work or going to school. And I get to be the preacher on Sunday. So on Monday, I'm out here, this building ain't here. You start seeing some wood. You see a pile of wood. You see a truck driving up the hill, and you're thinking, what is that? And then every time you drive by, you see more. You see more. You see more. And suddenly you see an ark that's bigger than a football field, uh, one and a half times the length of a football field, and you're saying, what in the world is going on? Okay, so, so you're the guy up there. You're, you're Noah, and you're hammering on that ark, right? You're building away. People in Jonesboro are going to climb up the hill and see what's happening, aren't they? And so they're going to drive up to the top of the hill and they're going to look at that crazy man up there on that ark and they're going to say, what are you doing? What a chance to preach. You got their attention. If I had that example today, all of you would be listening. But now it's harder. But what kind of example could that, how could they not listen to a man that was so convicted in what he needed to do, that was following God's plan, that had the best message of repentance that he could present? They didn't listen. They didn't listen. I asked early church, I wonder how big that ark was. I wonder if he'd been preaching to all of us, and some of us had heard what he had to say about God's promise, knew that God was fixing to flood this place and kill everybody. How many of us would have been listening and would have said, can I go with you? I repent from this weakness. Can I go with you? Do you think there was a room in that ark for more people? You know, the God that I know, I think he probably prepared for that. We don't see that in Scripture, but God loved those people. That's his creation. They didn't respond. They ignored his promise. No repentance. No conversions. Now, as God sets up there as he is about to bring this promise into fulfillment, you think he was happy? 
Do you think he was happy watching the destruction of the bulk of what he had created? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it was horrible to him. Never know. But I do think that it's consistent with the other reaction of God where he got to the point and he said, that's enough. That's enough. I'm done. He destroyed the world with a flood. There were eight souls that survived that flood in the ark and a bunch of animals that were, uh, he was told to take with him. The righteous were saved. The ungodly were destroyed. Now, if you uh, want to think about something, I, I was going to try to teach you some ancient Bible history, and I thought, well, so Noah was there, and he had his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right, the kids. And so what were his wives' names, or what was Noah's wife? So I found his, uh, his wife's name. I think it was Naamah. And so I, I looked up. I Googled and said, well, what were the kids' wives' names? I found them, but there's a reason why I'm not going to tell them to you because I can't pronounce them. But we know they were saved. They're the reason why we ought to know their names. They're the reason why humanity was saved. Okay, the third example you see there in verse 6, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know that well, but you know you don't know it well if you've only studied in Genesis. This is a neat little section in 2 Peter that tells you more about this, more than you've really considered about the life of Lot. It offers a few more details, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19, you look at verse 20 of chapter 18, it says, God heard the outcry about these cities. Once again, the same story, their sin was grievous or pained God greatly. And as we see this introduced into Genesis, you know the story where Abram was, uh, God had approached him with three men and they came to him and they told him a story. They said, Abram, you know, God's promised you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abram's thinking, how? So these three men come to him and they tell him, you're going to have a son. His wife's back behind the tent, she's laughing. He says, you're going to have a son. Okay. So as that ends, God brings up the subject in Abram's presence about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says, he has seen them. He, he's heard the outcry about them. So he sends those three men, same three men, they go to check out Sodom and Gomorrah and see what's happened. Abram stayed. God stayed. This is where the bargaining begins, right? You remember that story? So God's promise, God's intention was he's fixing to smoke that city. He's turning it into ashes. Because they're too wicked. We can't, he can't tolerate that. So Abram, he knows, I got family there. I got family there. I got lot there. And so he knows, what can I say? So Abram bargains. He says, if you got 50, if I can find 50 righteous people, will you save the city? God said, yeah. So he starts bargaining down. He goes, well, if you got 45, yeah. You got 40, yeah. Then he gets bold. He says, how about 30? Would you take 30? Yeah. 20, 10. And Abraham's thinking, surely, surely I can find ten. I know eight of them, so, or I know a few of them. Surely I can find ten. God relented and allowed that. He was going to suspend the fulfillment of his promise that they could find ten righteous people. And we know that he couldn't. We know that that city was some kind of evil. We know that God allowed Lot and his family to leave the city before it was destroyed. God had expectations for those people. He'd made a promise. Time passed. Their sin became worse. God punished them. But you know, if you read this, verse 9 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, it's kind of encouraging, but it's kind of ominous because it gives both sides of God real clearly. It says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. That's what he can do. It also says, 
to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now we see from this example that how God has reacted to man's promises, or the promises he's made to man. Could there be a similar reaction of God when he watches us? Because he's made us this promise that Jesus is coming again, right? He looked at these people, how they reacted to his promise. Does he look at us? Does he look at man? So, now, back to the same story. When, when Abraham heard that promise, we learn in Romans chapter 4, Abraham had the best response when listening to God's promise. God says you're going to have a son. God said nation's going to be blessed through you. In chapter 4 of Romans, verse 20, it says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Verse 21 says that Abraham was fully assured, he was totally convinced that whatever God said, God could perform. Wow, are we that way? Yeah. That's a pretty stern measurement for us to be held up against. So let's, let's look at these verses we started with in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, okay, time out. You're going to say, hold on, substitute preacher. My Bible says something different here. You can't apply these reactions to me because we're regular church folks. This passage is about false teachers, right? Some of you got those study Bibles. You look back in chapter 2 and it says warnings against false teachers. Yeah, yeah. Can't be about us, right? Can it? False teachers. Well, you're right. Your Bible's right. It's true. This passage specifically relates to false teachers who were coming into the churches in Asia Minor. Peter's writing a letter to them. And it's extended to the church that's scattered as well here in 2 Peter. They had problems with false teachers. He had to warn them about false teachers. And I understand totally that's what this passage says. But give me a little latitude here. I think if you look closely, there's an application that fits us too. And I'll tell you why. Because every day that you walk out your door... You're teaching a lesson. Every day, if they know you're a Christian, and they know you're looking forward to that coming of Jesus someday, it's, it's in front of you, it's a promise that you're expecting. Every day that you walk out of your door, you're teaching a lesson about how you're reacting to that promise, how you're responding to that promise. Does it matter? Does it not? So if you look at this in, in verses 3 and 4, we see some reactions from people in that day. Uh, there were people that mocked. I think Tony's Bible said they were scoffers. And, and what they asked that question in verse 4, what did they say? They said, where is, this, where is this promise of his coming? And you know, if you read that, there's a whole lot of different ways you can interpret that. I'm going to give you about three, and I'm going to sneak a fourth one in here at the end about how those people were reacting. Okay, the first one is more about how the people that lived there that day reacted. And, and don't try to make these fit you, but if they do, let them give you pause, okay? Because it gave me pause when I was studying this, putting together. See, in that day, Jesus has already been and gone. There were Christians. They understood that it had already been promised Jesus is coming again. And, and there were people that were, they just stopped. They reached the point where they said, I know he's coming again. <clears throat> I'm right. I got it squared. I'm a Christian. <clears throat> I've been baptized. So what I'm going to do I'm just going to wait. I'm not doing anything else till it gets here. That's what they did. Uh, their exercise, their practice of Christianity essentially stopped, and they sat on their laurels, and they waited for Jesus to come again, which is good, but not exactly what God expects. Some of them just knew that he was coming immediately. Some of them chose to just sit and wait. Could we, could we have that reaction sometimes too? 
let me paint a picture for you. So I'm 55 years old. I've been a Christian a long, long time, many years. I've already done stuff. I've already done what God expected me to do, right? Now I just quit. I don't even have to pray anymore. Got this covered. Promise, I'm covered. I'm good. I don't have to worship. I ain't even got to go to church because I'm Christian. I got it covered. I don't have to teach anybody else that Jesus is coming again. I don't have to serve anybody else to show them the example of Jesus in my life. I used the example in early church, kind of like at the bus stop, where you walk in there and you sit on the bench at the bus stop, and you just wait. Bus is coming sometime. Can we be that way in the practice of our faith where we just sit on the pew and wait on the bus to come? Wait for God to come get me? Does God expect a better reaction than that out of us? Yes. Okay, some of these people here that are described, they, they genuinely did mock. They genuinely did scoff at the thought of Jesus coming again. And I've got maybe a couple of different ways to word that. The first one I would use is say, I know he's coming again. I'm busy. I'm just going to ignore it. I got lots going on. And so, kind of like me before, you've lived your whole life in this world. Things are just going to keep rocking along like they are. Some of them thought that since creation, it's just kept rocking along. Jesus ain't come back yet. Is he going to come? I'm just going to deal with what's happening in my life. I'll worry about Jesus later. It's like I'll take God and I'll put him up here on the back burner and I'll deal with him later. I don't have time. I'm too busy. you got too much going on. i got several more years. What are we supposed to live? Seventy-some-odd years? I'm 50, so i got 55. i got 15. I can wait. I can deal with this promise later. I'll take care of that right before I die. I can wait. Till then, i got other stuff I need to do. How would God perceive that reaction? How is he looking at us if that's what we say to him? Is that mockery to him? Okay, the third example I think you could draw from this is, I hear you. I hear you telling me he's coming again. Either I don't believe it or I don't care. It don't matter to me. And, and they look around in this world and say, well, there's too much in this world I can enjoy. I like this. Let's party. Yes. Do you see that reaction? People that know God's, come, God's sending Jesus back again, but yet they just want to party. We saw it in Exodus. We saw it in chapter 32 where they wanted to dance around a golden calf. What's the, what's the song? Dance, hold your hands in the air like you just don't care. That's what they were doing at the foot of the mountain. I'm sorry, Keely. Is it possible that we could do that? Who would do that? How could they do that? Aren't we doing that when we put other stuff in front of God? Other stuff in front of teaching about Jesus? Other stuff in front of sharing the message about God? Other stuff instead of practicing our Christianity living in hopes of that Jesus coming again. Sometimes we put stuff in front of us. We put our job, we put our sports, we put our recreation. Sometimes we even put our families in a priority over God. We don't really care about God and his promises. Isn't that a mockery of the fact that Jesus is coming again? How would God consider that reaction if he looks at us today? Okay, let's look at Lot again. Another common reaction is from people like Lot. We, we give a lot of bad rap. We say, well, he was greedy, he was selfish, and he walks in and he looks out across here and he sees this green pasture. He sees the water and he says, that's where I want to go. I want that nice ground. Abraham, you can have the desert out here. I got that. And that's how we usually view him, right? And so he chose that and it was great for a while. 
And somehow, instead of staying in the pasture by the stream, he went into town. And he stayed in the town. And he stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, even though he could look around himself and tell that's the most decadent, sinful, filthy cities in this entire region of the country. The sad part is Lot knew it was awful. Lot, he was a wealthy man. He had herds. He had servants. He, he could have walked out of there probably any time that he wanted to, yet he chose to stay in an environment that was sinful. I don't think he considered how much it might have cost him. You know, he knew what was going on, but did he consider the potential hazards to his wife, to his daughters? And we read the story, even to his friends that decided to come visit him or guests or, or, that come to visit him, come into that town and they're exposed to that filthiness, that awful town. And you know, can't we be like that today too? Can't we choose to live like that? Okay, and so with Lot, we know that he was saved from destruction. So there is a chance. It is possible that we can choose to live in, in decadence but not be consumed by that. We know that Lot was saved along with his children, but we also know that the risk he took cost him his wife. Okay, and there's one more neat perspective, and I wanted you to really point this out, and I'm sorry if I've gone along, but I, I'm sorry. I'll try to be quick till we end. So we see something different about Lot that we never study elsewhere. Lot, we see that Lot was a righteous man, and we see how the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah affected him. And it's commendable when you read about how this hit him because it says the sin oppressed Lot. It said that he was tormented by the sin. It said that Lot could see he witnessed the filthy conduct that was going on around him. He saw it and he heard it. And it troubled him greatly. Even though he was totally surrounded by it, even though it could have consumed him, he never would accept it. He could not condone it. He wouldn't get conditioned to it. He wouldn't allow that to be acceptable in his mind and you know that's how God is God has that mindset to where he cannot accept or condone sin are we that way do we look around in this world and things that are truly genuinely sinful does it bother us have we refused to accept it and condone it and allow it have we refused to be conditioned to where that's okay that's okay we have to keep our hearts pure we can't let them become hardened. We can't become callous to sin to where it don't matter to us anymore. Okay, fourth example, and I'm kind of pulling this one out of the air, but I think it fits. God's promised Jesus is going to come again. How do we react to that? Uh, I've watched Dylan and Kyle play sports and do all kinds of stuff, so you knew I was going to talk about you, didn't I? So, and especially you. So, uh, <laughs> I've watched them have games that they play and successes that they have during their life, and, and I've seen their reactions. Now, Keely, I'm not going to talk about you as much because you're a little more subdued in your reactions, although I've seen you get really excited. So, when they work for something and they accomplish something, they achieve a goal, when they win a contest, when they have a competition, what you see out of them is, is exhilaration. And Dylan, I'm going to do this. Tell me if I do this right. And so, when Dylan wins and he's so excited, he hits his chest and said, let's go, don't you? What, what if, what if the day comes where Jesus comes again, we see him come in the clouds, we hit our chest and say, let's go. Can we be that way? Is it that important? Would we be that excited about Jesus coming again? Or more than likely, your reaction is not going to be that strong, is it? More than likely, you're going to see that and you're going to see him coming and you're going to bow your head, and you're going to hold your arms up, and you're going to say, let's go. 
I want to go. I want to be there. That's who we're probably going to be. Both of those are good reactions, though. I'm ready. I want to go. So we've got choices today. We've seen this story. We've seen how God reacts in his previous promises. We can sit back and mock him. We can sit back and scoff at the fact that Jesus is coming again. We can choose to ignore that. We can take the attitude, I don't really care. We can be like Lot, though. We can risk our families, but hopefully save ourselves. We should be like Lot and be righteous and not ever accept sin, not ever condone sin. We can't ignore, hear me now, we can't ignore the critical fact that God has promised Jesus will come again. We've seen how God reacts in history. God's promised what he's going to do. God will bring humanity to judgment. But when? When will God reach the point where he looks down on us and he says, enough, I'm done, I'm through. We don't know. We don't even know that he's going to say that. But we do know that he's promised and he will fulfill that. God is not slack concerning his promises. He is long-suffering to each and every one of us. He's not willing to lose a single one of us. He wants us to repent. He wants us to come to him in obedience. And if you're not a Christian right now, God desperately wants you to come forward. God desperately wants you to be baptized into Christ. If you're a Christian and the reactions you've had have mimicked some of those we talked about today, if you mock, if you scoff at the fact that Jesus is coming again, if it's not what God's expecting out of us, out of his people, out of his children, please come forward now as well. Don't you want to live the rest of your life from this minute forward with the reaction of, I'm ready, let's go. Can't you feel the desire of God reaching back down to you wanting you to come to him? Please come if you need to while we stand and sing.